to have kids upstairs. I guess they're really wound up. So we'll be giving them black coffee and uh, extra candy so that you can have a really good afternoon this afternoon when you go home. All right, and kittens, free kittens. No, I'm going. I'm going up north. <laughs> All right. So we're in our second week of a, a new series on the Lord's Prayer. We did just the introduction last week, and um, we talked about that in your grow groups. And I hope you had good conversations. Uh, there's a lot, a lot in this little prayer. Um, so what I thought I, I wanted to do this morning is uh, start first by reading through the Vineyard Provided Sermon Notes and the three points that they draw from this verse, which is um, Matthew 6, 9. We're going to take the Lord's Prayer uh, verse by verse, actually. Eric, could you pop that up there? Anyone know how to do uh, the screen? We're shy, shy one. No? Yeah. Uh, oh, oh, Jenny's got it. Thanks, Jen. So pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Okay. So they draw out um, three points from this verse, and we'll go through those. And then I want to draw our attention backwards in time and history to explore some of the context surrounding this verse, which may help us to understand just how important and revolutionary uh, this first, first verse really is, just this verse alone. Okay. So these are the vineyard uh, points on this, and you will have this on your notes in your booklet for your small groups. So, okay. uh, There is power in a name. Now, you, you all understand. I, I know because you, you're so smart. Um, biblically, biblically, uh, they didn't go into a little book, you know, popular names for boys, popular names for girls in the 21st century, right? They prayed. They thought about the character, um, the, the possible sense of purpose in God that this new baby is going to have. And they named that baby based on that and their hopes for the child's life. So a name that's given, so you've, you've got the birth of Jacob. Anyone ever read Esau and Jacob, right, twins? Right, and Esau comes out first, and Jacob comes out second, but he's got his, a hold of Esau's ankle. He's trying to pull Esau back in so he can be the first one out, right? So what, they name him Jacob, which means usurper, right? So there's an application uh, to his life, and he did that. He conned his brother out of his birthright later on, <clears throat> and then God changed his name to Israel, which is a prince with God, okay, because God changed his character. So biblical names are really, really important. They're not just, oh, I like that name, or 
yeah, I saw this movie, and, you know, so-and-so. No, a little deeper than that, all right? So there is power in a name. A name quietly carries with it a rich story, a story of ancestry, roles, expectations, and even the power to act. <coughs> Excuse me. The prayer that Jesus teaches us begins with the most familial and most meaningful of the names that we have for God, our Father. Our Father. So point one from the Vineyard Notes focuses on the our. The word our reminds us that we are part of a family, a trans-historical tribe of men, women, and children who have recognized that God truly is the one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, according to Ephesians 4, 6. When we pray, we are <coughs> a part of a community whose prayers are always ascending to the one God who keeps them before him as a sweet incense, prayers that move him to change the world, Revelation 8, Three through four. In other words, you are never praying alone. You're never praying alone. Point two is the word Father. We confidently proclaim and affirm God's character as our Father. We are remembering to whom we are praying, the lover of our souls. Speaking out his name, this name of God, we affirm who God is, what God is like, and the loving motives of his heart toward us as he listens to our requests. This posture postures us to pray with confidence, knowing that our prayers will be heard, not because of our fervor or our eloquence or because you're praying in uh, King James English or any of that stuff, right? But rather because of the listener's love toward us. Your final point, the third point, in heaven, hallowed be your name. He is our Father in heaven, meaning that he dwells in a sphere of creation that is beyond that of our earthly fathers. Now, I'm going to ask you a personal question. You don't have to raise your hand on this, just but answer it within yourself. Um, do you have difficulty with your dad? Right. As some of you know, know part of my story, you know, I had, I had a uh, biological father. Uh, him, my mom got divorced uh, when I was before I was two. I don't think I saw him again till I was seven or eight, and he wasn't allowed to come into the house. I had to go down two flights of stairs and meet with him in the little hallway. And that he'd show up on Wednesday nights with the $20 that he had to give my mother for me and my brother, right? What do they call that? Alum? Child support, right? So every Wednesday. And then, then he disappeared for, I don't know, till I was 13. And this, this was his advice to me, right? Listen, Dick, someday you're going to have to get a job and work. And when you start working... That's it. You're going to have to work for the rest of your life. So party hardy while you can. Right? Okay, Dad. <laughs> no. He, he was an alcoholic. 
happy alcoholic, really happy alcoholic. He liked to party hardy when he could. Now, my stepdad, um, he was a, a meat cutter over in the meat district of Boston. He had han hands as big as a ham hock. I mean, this guy's hands were massive, right? The back of my head knew them well. Bang, right? And uh, he worked. He worked overtime. He worked 12 hours a day. He worked Saturdays. Um, there was very little room for relating. Like, I don't ever remember, you know, going up, throwing a baseball. None of that was there, right? Just work, work, work. So when, when I was 12 and got work papers because I was in a uh, school being trained for a trade, uh, the first question was, how much are you going to pay into the house? And then my mother adjusted that and said, just give me your whole paycheck. I'll give you an allowance. And I lived that way till I left her home, right? So anyways, I come into the kingdom, and my pastor starts talking to me about a relationship with a father. And I'm thinking, huh, relationship with a father. So I said, so which one? You know, which one is he? Is he the party-hardy God? You know, you're going to get to know him, have a good time, right? Or, or is he the strict, you know, if you make the wrong move, you get a whack in the back of the head, and you, you pay your dues, you know, you pay up. You got to pay in, right? And uh, it took me probably five or six years to realize he's none of that. He's our heavenly father. So that just isn't geography, it isn't location, right, coordinates, da, da, da. That has so much more meaning to it. It means he's nothing like anything you have ever experienced on earth, good, bad, or indifferent. He's above it all. He is the I am that I am. He's not I, the I, I am like the guy you like or the guy you want your father to be. He has no parameters like that placed around him. There's no expectation because he is good. He is always good. He's a good, good father, right? So when, when it says, our father in heaven, think safe. He's really safe, right? And a lot of people don't have that sense when it comes to God. They, you know, oh, God's watching. Oh, right? <laughs> God's watching, great, I'm all set. If God's watching, I'm all set. Like, that's what Father in Heaven says to me now. Okay. Father in Heaven, meaning that he dwells in the sphere of creation that is beyond that of our earthly fathers and has unlimited knowledge of factors influencing our situation that are beyond our own limited perceptions. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He kn Jesus said this, he knows your need even before you ask, right? He's always more than one step ahead of you. Okay. The imperative, be holy, your name holy. Ask God to make his name sacred and revered again in us and the world, something only he can do. So you'll find all of that in your, your study booklet. You'll be discussing that in your meetings this week. So 
I'd encourage you maybe as a point of discussion, uh, I don't know how far you want to open up, how safe you feel in your group, but maybe you'd want to talk about your own experience with a dad, with a father, good, bad, or indifferent, because the more you explore that and lay it up against what goes on between you and the Lord, the more opportunity you have to be healed of past woundings. And I will switch to some of my own notes. I think it's an unfortunate tendency uh, that we humans have when we lay hold of something as powerful as the Lord's Prayer, that we, uh, with a sincere desire to draw on its deeper truths, begin to try and integrate it into our spiritual life by means of memorization and repetition rather than by living out in practice what the prayer offers to us, right? How many of you have the Lord's Prayer memorized? Our Father who art in heaven, right? Every time you, do you start to say it when someone else begins to pray it out loud, right? I mean, it's almost on autopilot, right? I mean, we've done that with this prayer. Uh, how many got Catholic backgrounds, right? It's the lone bead, the lone bead between the ten beads, right? You pray those ten little Mary prayers, right? And then you then you do the Our Father, right? So every time you hit a single beat, I mean, years of this, years of this, I got this prayer down, right? Our Father, what? Hey, I can almost feel that thing in my hand, right? And we do that. We do that. We we want to lay hold of something. And I don't know that that's the best of ways to to find uh, the expression. And this is what the prayer offers us, is a means of communication with Father God that leads to an intimate dependency. Uh, I, I know some of you probably cringe a little bit, the word dependency, right? Because nowadays it's all about being independent, right? But be independent when you're in trouble, and you're really in trouble, right? We need one another. We need him. There's an intimate dependency that he's trying to draw us into. Okay. So to an intimate dependency on the manifold expressions of his love for us as his sons and daughters. Another dynamic that keeps us from fully apprehending the depths of what Jesus has given us is our contextual understanding of the Father, right? The Father in context. As New Testament believers, this is a common language. It is for us as easy to speak about our Father in heaven as it is to speak about our earthly dads. Okay. Because it is common New Testament language, it becomes relationally casual rather than relationally intimate. And somehow, holy is your name becomes Father, the friendly God. Okay. And we lose the sense of awe and wonder that is inherent to his appearing. But in Jesus' day, which would be an Old Testament context for his audience, the idea of a casual relationship with God, even as Father, was unheard of. 
Although the idea of God as Father is continually intimated throughout the Old Testament, it is rarer that it is clearly stated and proclaimed as Jesus does in the Gospel accounts. I, I got to give you a little disclaimer on this because when I first started researching this idea, um, I, I came up with the conclusion that it was just totally missing from the Old Testament. And I'm not alone in that. The early church fathers, Origen, uh, said there's no mention of the Father in the Old Testament. And so I was talking to this. I, I talked to you about Josiah. I talked to Martha about it, you know, and something clicked in Martha's brain. And she goes into this deep research mode, right? She starts looking in the Mishnah, right? Anyone know what the Mishnah is? These are the writings of the of the Jewish rabbis through the ages, right? And she says, you're wrong. I said, well, well, tell me. Come on, tell me. She says, the Father is all over the Old Testament. She starts quoting this rabbi and that rabbi. So I, I begin to do some research, and it turns out that Urgen was wrong. Right? It's just his opinion. And he is mentioned as Father in the Old Testament Scripture. I'm just going to give you a couple of uh, verses, uh, just so that you so that you get it, okay. Isaiah sixty three fifteen and sixteen. This is the prophet Isaiah is speaking, and he says, "Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation." So essentially, look down from heaven, right? Our Father in heaven. So he's talking to the same guy, right? Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our Father. For you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer. From old is your name. From old is your name. So, an application for this that, that Isaiah is reflecting on is God's covenant commitment to Israel. So the idea of fatherhood for Israel was God has made a covenant. You have promised to Abraham, our father, to Isaac, and to Jacob certain responses to us, certain obligations you have for us. If we keep your law, if we love you, if we obey you, then you will do this. And, and Isaiah is saying, listen, if you're going to be our father, you have, to, you have to respond to our needs. And he says that, you know, uh, where is your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. Wait a minute, we're in covenant relationship. You're supposed to be my father. You should be giving me this stuff. You see, it's a covenantial response to the father. Then there is this extraordinary prayer of King David in Chronicles. And I want you to listen to the elements of David's prayer uh, that we might find in the Lord's Prayer. Okay, And this would be a great discussion in your grow groups. Anyone who's taking notes for your group, uh, put down First Chronicles 29, uh, starting in verse 10. You can go as far with this as you want. I only went up to 13. Okay, First Chronicles 29, 10 through 13. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, our Father, forever and ever. 
Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Didn't we sing this? Huh? Huh? Right? Right? For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom. Right? Bingo. Right? Now, now we're doing the Lord's Prayer. Yours is the kingdom, the power, the might, the majesty, right? Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. So this is a positional expression of the power of Father. It's an expression of God as Father, an expression of his power over his people. But what Jesus continually expresses concerning the Father is our Father is, come on, give a guess. Our Father is, that's location. Our Father is God is, someone said it, God is love, right? God is love. It isn't about, they, they understood the power. They got that. They saw his mighty deeds, right? They, they walked in the wilderness with this guy for 40 years. He fed them every day with bread from heaven. They knew what he was capable of, but they never translated it into an ongoing expression of love. It was covenant relationship. We cut a deal with each other, right? Listen to Jesus. He says this, for God so loved the world, he gave his son, right? And so in preparation of the giving of the son is the revelation of the son, through which is expressed the love of the father. So, of course, mo the most obvious expression of God as father by the expression of a son would be in Genesis, Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image, right? So I went and visited uh, my daughter Katrina in the hospital yesterday. She just had that brand-new little baby girl, right? And Bryant is there, her husband, the baby's father, right? And was it you, Denise, who said, oh, she has, your, she has your cheekbones or something, right? We're all looking at that, looking to find the father in her little face, right? It's an expression. The, the offspring is an expression of the father. And this is, this is what's going on with God in the garden. So God created man in his own image. So if you saw Adam in the garden... You saw the Father. What did Jesus say? If you see me, you see the Father, right? I mean, that's, that's what sonship does. It draws the Father into purview. And the Father was doing this with the Son in anticipation of the Son's coming. He was drawing, by his own expression, the Son into purview. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So, oh, how cute, like Adam looks just like his dad. Isn't that nice, right? But it isn't like that at all. Adam is enlivened by the very essence of God himself. 
Adam is made in God's image by the act of God as father going face to face, mouth to mouth, and breathing his very essence into Adam's bodily form. Genesis 2.7, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living creature. And the word in Hebrew for breath of life is zoe, life of the absolute fullness of life, both essential and ethical, which belongs to God. And through him, both to the hypostatic logos, that is the union of the divine and human nature. The divine and human nature came together. So guess what our nature is? Dust. Right? Dirt. Red clay. It's about the best you get out of the deal. And God comes along in a hypostatic act. He invests his divine nature, his Zoe life breath into that and this stuff becomes a living creature. Okay? That's fatherhood. That's sonship. Right? Not good? And to Christ in whom the Logos put on human nature, life real and genuine, a life active and vigorous, devoted to God, blessed in the portion, even in this world, of those who put their trust in Christ. So what Adam got from Father in the garden, Jesus gives to us now. Christ in you is a hypostatic activity, the divine melding in with the natural, so that you become other than what you were before that happened. And you all know you've changed since you come to Christ, right? I'm glad I didn't know you before. But this, of course, is in the garden. Before the fall, before sin and death entered the scene, an intimate fellowship was broken. But if we follow the theme of implied fatherhood by God, we begin to see a redemptive, revelatory pattern develop. Here is a set of scriptures that I want to follow through from first utterance to fulfillment and then give you Jesus' statement as to what it all represents. It starts in the Exodus story, right? Israel as a nation is enslaved in Egypt under hard bondage. They cry out to God. God hears and sends a redeemer in the person of Moses. So Moses is in conversation with God, and God is in the burning bush, right, about the process of freeing Israel, and it starts with a confrontation with Pharaoh, who is the ruler of Egypt. Exodus 4.21. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, <coughs> see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So what is he saying? I am Israel's father. 
Israel is my firstborn son. You have to look at both sides of the coin. Therefore, I am Israel's father. Let my son go that he may serve me. Okay, so that sets the theme. The introduction of the son is the revelation of the father. But the Hebrews' understanding of God under the covenant of the law was one of rules and regulations, of performance and reverence. Remember, the context here is revelatory. It's revelation, a prophetic unfolding of the very nature of the living God, and so it continues to emerge within the framework of the scriptures over time. We get up to the prophet Hosea in chapter 11, and he says this, when Israel was a child, now, this is the father speaking. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Right? So we saw when that took place, right? You let, the, Israel's my son. You let him go. Let my son go that he might come out and serve me or come out and worship me. So I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. Come on, you never did that? I've talked to a lot of you guys, and you say, oh, I know God is telling me to do that, but, right? Right, so nothing new under the sun here. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yes, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. What's, he, what's God describing here? Do you ever see a father with their little toddler just getting ready to walk? And the father holds their arms up and helps them to walk, right? That's what God is describing here. When they came out of Egypt, they had 400 years of captivity in a pagan nation. There were all kinds of other gods going on. And God, their father, is trying to adjust them to relate to him intimately. So he had to train them like a child. He had to hold up their little arms and teach them how to walk in his ways, right? He was fathering them. That's what he's describing, a father fathering his son. Yes, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Right? All of this describes the activity of a father in relationship to his son or daughter. So not only does this, does the son reveal the father, but the revelation of the son shows the very nature of a father who is loving, kind, forgiving, and caring. Right? So I want you to say this. My father in heaven, you are loving and kind and caring to me, right? 
So if that's true, you never have to fear God. He is good. He's your father. He'll teach you how to walk. He'll feed you in your wilderness times. He'll hold you up by your arms. Right? Of course, for us, this picture is brought into clear focus in the story of the prodigal son returning to his father. Do you all remember that? Right? The younger son takes the inheritance and squanders it, ends up feeding pigs in a trough, right? And he says, oh, I got to go home. To see my dad. Well, where's dad? He's up on the roof. He doesn't even know the kid's coming. But I bet he was on that roof every day. Today the day. Today the day. And he runs out and meets him and embraces him, right? Father, I've sinned. No, no, no. Forget that. Forget that. Let me clean you up. Let me clothe you. Let me put a ring on your finger. Let's let's eat. Right? Good Christian response. Let's eat. <laughs> bacon. Yeah. I had enough bacon. <laughs> but the theme of the son revealing the father comes to fulfillment as do so many prophetic themes in Jesus. Matthew 2:13. This is after the wise men have come and gave their gifts and uh, they're supposed to report back to Herod to tell him where he found the child. They didn't know that he was supposed to, that Herod wanted to kill the baby, but in a dream they, they learned that and told Joseph, listen, you better take off, buddy. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Flee to Egypt, right? And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So from the very exodus from Egypt, all the way up to the time of the revelation of the Son of the living God manifest in the flesh, God had been telling the Jewish people, listen, my son is coming. He's coming out of Egypt. I'll call him to you. Right? And Jesus fulfills that. Here's the equation in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Father revealed the Son so that in the New Testament, the Son could reveal the Father. Now listen to how Jesus explains it in John 5. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Where did he do that? Where did the Father bear witness about Jesus? In the Old Testament, right? Out of Egypt, I'm going to call my son. Israel is my son. He's continually revealing the son over his own fatherhood. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. 
for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures, so there it is. There's, there's the place where the Father gives testimony of the Son. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. The Father bears witness about me in the scriptures, and you're looking for something else. But because the Jews missed the revelation concerning the Son, they could not receive the revelation by the Son concerning the Father. And so they continually sought to stone him, to crucify him, to get him off the scene, right? One last scripture, I'm going to close. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in, in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. <clears throat> I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. There it is. There it is. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The bottom line is this. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray and open with these words, Our Father... He started a revolution against the bondage of religious fear as well as a revelation of the open, intimate, loving, and accessible heart of Father God revealed by his Son and the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except by me. Let's pray. So, Holy Spirit, we delight we delight in the substance of this prayer, of the idea, of the impact of our Father in heaven. We ask you, Holy Spirit, uh, to open our ears to hear, our minds and our hearts to understand, that we might lay hold of the truth of the intimacy that is offered to us by our loving Father in heaven. Would you come, O oh God? I pray for any in this room who may have suffered wounding uh, from an earthly father who may struggle with the concept of you as their father because of this. Would you come? Would you heal? Would you heal that wound? Would you uh, mend that brokenness in them? Would you reveal your father's heart to them? Come, Holy Spirit. I ask you to bless these people now. In the mighty name of Jesus, who reveals the Father to us and reconciles us to him. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. If you need prayer today, if you're struggling with this concept, come up, get some prayer. Uh, it's really easy to break that, that bondage. Otherwise, if you've got kids upstairs, I'm sure they're pretty pumped and juiced by now. Um, good luck. <laughs> Go in peace.